Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican Communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. Our bodies betray us repeatedly on account of both the distorting effects of sin and the entropic forces of the world. Even in the corruption of our flesh, the you know slow dissolution of our flesh, there is still you know the life-giving breath of God in our flesh. Welcome back, podcast listeners. A little housekeeping on the front end. We are working hard on what is swiftly becoming a two-part episode about the Living Church's English pilgrimage, so continue to stay tuned. In the meantime, I've got a question for you. Right now, can you name the five senses? Go. Okay, smell, sound, taste, touch, um, eyeballs, vision. That's what it's called. Okay, great. Now, for all five of those senses, when is the last time an experience of worship just full throttle delighted you? Was it a special service like a Christmas Eve service? Was it a special day like your wedding day? Was it the first time you experienced the worship tradition you now call home? Has it been a while for you? Today, we're working with the thesis that God loves our bodies and God wants to engage us and delight us, every bit of us, in worship of him. Now, how do we know God loves our bodies? And if Jesus' ministry was so physical and concerned with bodies, why have Christians been so attracted to Gnosticism? over and over again. And don't worry, we will define Gnosticism. How can God's nonverbal communication skills help us with conflict? How do our bodies belong in worship? How do we know what to do with ourselves, particularly in traditions that might not be so, how shall I say this, uh, movementful? Where do we get the idea, anyway, that quiet and stillness always, always mean reverence? And when might we need to shake that up? These are a few of the questions you'll hear our guest and I discuss today. I am welcoming the Reverend Dr. W. David O. Taylor onto the show. David is Associate Professor of Theology and Culture at Fuller Theological Seminary, and he's been an artist, a pastor, and a pastor to artists. As an Anglican priest, he's lectured on the arts from Thailand to South Africa. In 2016, he produced a short film on the Psalms with Bono and Eugene Peterson. You can find that film, his several books on theology, the arts, and worship, 
and collaborations with his artist wife, Phaedra, at wdavidotaylor.com. We'll also have a link for you in the show notes. Today, we'll be riffing on his work represented in his latest book, A Body of Praise, Understanding the Role of Our Physical Bodies in Worship, published by Baker Academic. And you can find a review of his book, P.S., in our latest issue of the magazine, August 2023. You can subscribe to The Living Church at livingchurch.org to enjoy that issue digitally today. You can also click the link in the show notes. Now, whether you're currently sitting or standing, prostrate or dancing, kneeling, running, burning incense, painting, baking, shining silver, or some combination of the above, we hope you enjoy the conversation. David, thank you for joining me today on the podcast. Amber, thank you for having me. I thought it would be kind of fun for people to know how we, do you remember how we met? Like, do we have a meet cute? I don't know, but how did we? Is it before Divinity School? Maybe. It was either Duke or church. So we met in Durham, North Carolina via Duke Divinity School and All Saints Anglican. And uh, we have crossed paths in many different cities, right? Oh, yeah, we yeah, have. Including retreat centers. We have. <laughs> We've partied across the USA and especially <laughs> at Laity Lodge outside of Kerrville, Texas, which is a magical place. But one of the things I remember most about our, about my close encounters of the David kind is that one day I was house sitting for some mutual yeah. friends. That's right. I was in the kitchen. And I was getting some coffee and I was just thinking, you know, I haven't seen David Taylor in so long. I wonder what he and Phaedra are up to. I wonder where they are. And then here comes David coming down the stairs. So this, this house had, I think, three or four uh-huh. stories uh-huh. and you right. were up on the very top. And I didn't right. know that you were spending the night on your way somewhere else. And all of a sudden you come in the kitchen and it was one of the most bizarre moments right. of my life. If only we could wish to see people and they would appear. Or wish that we weren't seeing people. <laughs> they would disappear. Those are both dangerous powers. David, I just want to say that I've really been enjoying your new book, A Body of Praise, published by Baker Academic. First, I'd love to know, what was the genesis of a book about the body in worship? How did you come to a project like this? Was it partly inspired by the pandemic? I think there are two origin points for the book. One goes back to a a THM thesis that I wrote in seminary about 25 years ago. It was a New Testament thesis, and I wrote it on the theological significance of Jesus' healing healing miracles. And the long and short of it is that I was able to explore how his mending of people's bodies was expression, manifestation, anticipation, foretaste of the new creation. And I think at that time, I really reckoned with the fact that I had taken bodies, physical bodies, much less seriously than Jesus was taking them. Hmm. And I found myself both inspired and haunted by that fact and all of my writing over the years, as in one sense, eventually led up to this book. But in more sort of recent history, I began wondering, well, I I wondered whether there might be a book, like a kind of handbook that would help both cradle and converts to 
let's just say Anglicanism as the term to express global, you know, the global communion, not particularly within the U.S., to explain why we did what we did with our bodies. Everything from, let's say, kissing icons, which Anglo-Catholics might do, to dancing, which well, any number of congregations might do if it's liturgical dancing or, you know, spontaneous kinds of dancing. And I had a very hard time finding a book. And so I started rummaging in Catholic circles, as it were, Catholic libraries, and would find some old, dusty, out-of-date little pamphlets. Hmm. And I asked some Eastern Orthodox friends, and their answer was that it's something that, you know, you learn on, on the way, on the go. Mm-hmm. You don't need a book. <laughs> right. That's a little... a very, it sounds like a very Eastern yeah. Orthodox answer. Orthodox. <laughs> answer. <laughs> Taste and see, as they might say. So I imagined the possibility of writing something like that to help, again, cradle and, and converts understand why we did what we did prescriptively with our bodies. And so begin teasing that out. But as I tease that out, I did come, you know, to realize that I would need to try to make sense of extemporaneous, impromptu, spontaneous kinds of actions that have occurred historically in, in the church's liturgical life. Almost like and a tradition of spontaneity. There's also there's there's traditional prescribed practices. Yes. But there is also yes. tra- in the tradition yes. spontaneous physical Absolutely. responses in worship that repeat themselves over time. They do. <laughs> they Which do. is an, very so, interesting. It's very fascinating. And in fact, along those lines, as I began to sketch out a theology and practice of spontaneity, I, I wrote a number of theological colleagues or colleagues in the academic world to ask what resources they're familiar with. And the 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 general answer was very little. I needed to get some clarity around like how we might think theologically about the place of spontaneity or innovation, because it is such a contested territory within Orthodox Catholic and certain Anglican Episcopal circles where, you know, it somehow violates the 11th commandment if we're spontaneous in any, you know, fashion. Long and short of it is I began writing more and more and more. I began thinking about like persons with disabilities and multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multicultural worship and those issues and digital technologies. Then I realized I needed to write a whole book. So that's what happened. I wrote a whole book. Okay, David, there's something that puzzles me. Maybe you can help yeah. me with this. As I was reading your book, something occurred to me. So you you point out that there are two kinds of fullness that we experience as bodily creatures. We experience full life as a human being. God has for us a full life that's mm-hmm. just plain human. Mm-hmm. And then also a full life that we can only tap into as part of Christ's body. Mm-hmm. An example of, of when we, you know, COVID is a great example of feeling mm-hmm. a lack in both of these areas. So mm-hmm. if you got mm-hmm. COVID, you couldn't taste anything. Right. That is, you know, you drink your coffee, it tastes just like mud. You know, that's a diminishment of basic human life. And then right. it also took away our ability to gather in person for worship, to receive mm. communion. And so a diminishment of our sense of participation in the body of Christ. So here's here's the thing I'm curious about. Why have mm. Christians from the very beginning been drawn to Gnosticism and, and tempted mm. by mm-hmm. Gnosticism? And I ask that partly because anything that's a temptation has a grain of truth in it. Mm-hmm. So what's the truth in Gnosticism that we keep getting attracted to? I, I teach theology classes at Fuller Seminary, and when we do a Doctrine of Creation and Doctrine of Humanity, 
and doctrine of Christ, <laughs> we visit Gnosticism, you know, in different ways. And I try to help my students have some kind of sympathetic understanding. That is, those who are drawn to Gnosticism, there's some instinct in them that draws them towards a Gnostic understanding and a Gnostic experience practice of the world. And I think what that is, <laughs> is this fact that our bodies betray us repeatedly on account of both the distorting effects of sin and the entropic forces of the world. Yes. We may have some listeners who actually are thinking, what's Gnosticism? What's Gnosticism? Tell me, tell me. It's essentially this view that what's bodily and physical is bad and is always going to drag you down. And that's sort of the, the locus of death and sin is the body. So the less bodily you can be, the more spiritual you can be and the more saved you can be, <laughs> essentially, the more holy you can be. Yeah, so you have these very sharp metaphysical bifurcations. Mm -hmm. You have God the Creator on one side, Jesus the Savior on the other, matter, non-matter body, a non-bodily, you know, sort of soul. What you want of a fullness, of a trueness, is this non-material reality. And I think anybody who's lived in a body for any measure of time has experienced all the ways that our bodies betray us, that we bring to worship bodies that are infected with self-hatred and oppressed by sickness and pierced by loneliness and haunted by aging and fearful of rejection and terrified of being out of control. I, I'm getting over bronchitis. It's an inconvenience. <laughs> I've had worse sicknesses, which make me want to get rid of my body. Just the other day, I was doing phonograms of my six-year-old son and he paused in the middle of his AEIOU and looked at my hand and said, Daddy, your hand is the old man hand. <laughs> and I thought, I have old man hands. I have like well-used hands. <laughs> but I am going older. So I think Gnosticism has some of that sense of the, the terror of the ways in which the physical realm marked by sin and entropy drags us down and causes us to feel defeated and depleted and deficient in all sorts of ways. I think in addition to that, you have very serious misreadings of phrases in scripture, like a body of death from Romans 7, or when Jesus says in John 6, that the flesh counts for nothing. So I think those are misunderstandings and misappropriations of phrases, but those recur throughout history. And so once you sort of package our like our psychosomatic experience of the world plus some pretty bad exegesis, and that adds to a compound of you know pretty deleterious theology, you get Gnosticism. I think the other thing that comes into play. It's just a scandal, the particularity of Jesus's flesh, that it yeah. is a particular delimited flesh. It goes to this village and not that village. He heals these people, but not those people, but don't those people. And so wouldn't it be better if God does not delimit himself to flesh, to fleshy fleshness, as John 1 puts it, and instead remains... Uh, you know, comprehensively available in this in this you know allegedly superior 
non-material realm. So I think those are the things that come into play. But as Tertullian says, the hinge of salvation is Jesus's flesh. And in the Latin, you actually have the language of hinge and flesh are a play on words. That it is the fleshiness upon which hinges our fleshly recreation and, and redemption. So all this to say, I try to help my students understand sympathetically what it is that draws us because it is recurring. Every generation finds itself magnetically drawn to some vision of life that enables us to, to dis- escape this too, too solid flesh. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My parents are growing older and they're really struggling with heart issues and skin issues and sight and sound. And I get it, right? So what does it mean for us to confess faith in one who takes on flesh and through that flesh, by his spirit, sanctifies and blesses all flesh? So that even in, you know, the corruption of our flesh, the, the you know, slow dissolution of our flesh, there is still a grace, you know, the life-giving breath of God in our flesh. And in fact, the dissolution of our flesh has become the lever of our new life. It's the mm-hmm. only way to mm-hmm. be resurrected yeah. is to die, which exactly. isn't it, which is like, you know it, you learn it from the time you're a little kid in Sunday school, and then it just once in a while, it just blows your mind again. You're like, why? This makes no sense. And, you know, I, I'm glad you mentioned the Gospel of John, because in your book, you point out the fact that the Gospel of John is often thought to be the most mystical, meaning the most ethereal of the mm-hmm. Gospels. And actually, it begins with, what'd you say, fleshy fleshness, the word becoming flesh. And then, of course, the the epistles of John are also about what we've seen with our eyes, what we've touched with our hands, that these are, Mm -hmm. and that's not metaphorical, what we've literally seen with our eyes, what we've literally touched with our hands. This is our witness. This is our testimony to the grace, the power, the love of God. Okay. You know, when it comes to Anglicans, let's talk about Anglicans for a second, David. Yes, please. We talk about, we're starting, it's sort of almost in in vogue to talk about bodiliness, being a mm. body. We're, mm. we're, we're, it, we're, we're, we are ensouled bodies instead of embodied souls. I don't disagree with any of that. But I think sometimes we're such a wordy bunch as Anglicans. Mm. If we can describe something, then maybe we can avoid participating in it as fully as we, mm. you know, as mm. we would otherwise. So I, I see your, your Orthodox friends had a point about tasting and seeing. <laughs> but you say that our bodies are actually constantly speaking. What is it like? 80 to 90% of our communication is done non-verbally. And this this posed a question to me, which is, Mm. how is the Lord an expert at non-verbal communication with us? We've got the scriptures, we've got the prayer book, we, you know, we even call Jesus Christ the word. Right. But surely he's got to be good at nonverbal communication <laughs> if that's 90% of our communication. So right. how can we be more aware? Like, what is God yeah. saying to us nonverbally in worship? What are our bodies saying to him nonverbally? Just want to chat about this with you. <laughs> I, I think there's maybe an assumption at work 
in my book, when it comes to this question of how bodies are talking, always talking, <clears throat> and the assumption would be this, that one of the main destructive effects of sin upon our bodies is that it causes us to want to hide in our bodies and from our bodies. Sin causes us to want to deny our bodies and it causes us to want to abuse our bodies, which is a long and you know short way to say that sin causes us to become strangers to our bodies, alienated from our bodies. And the goal, the goal of redemption, the goal of salvation, the goal of recreation is to enable us to be at home fully in our bodies, fully present to our bodies so that we can be fully present to others. If my assumption is correct, then all of us are experts at some way or in some fashion, consciously or unconsciously, at using our bodies to hide from others or even from ourselves, to dissimulate, to pretend we are something that we are not, or to be self-protective in a way that is harmful, in a way that causes us to want to you know, hide or run from our bodies or, or to, to protect ourselves because we believe that the forces of harm are greater than, than the power of God to protect and to, to heal. This is a long, you know, long way of saying, I guess, that in Jesus, we see one who is fully present to others in his body. His body is always talking. And so begs the question, what is his body saying? His body is saying that the grace of God is for you, that the love of God is for you, the goodness of God is for you. All of you who have ever come to believe for any number of reasons that the goodness of God is not for you because you're a leper, because the grace of God for you is not for you because you have been hemorrhaging you know, for 12 years. So Jesus is the one who sees, uh, who hears, who fully knows how to offer care-filled touch, whose eye contact and tone of voice and facial expression and body language and gestures and timing and the quality of his voice are all communicating this one fundamental conviction, and that is that God has made his home with you. So Jesus is using <clears throat> postures, all his gestures, all the touching, all the nearness, to communicate that God is with and for them in a tangible, palpable grace. And so I, 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 one of the phrases that I use, a little bit subversive or cheeky, in a cheeky manner, if you want to sort of take it in that way, is that Jesus is the most touchy-feely of them all. And by that, I mean that you get a feel for the presence of God, for the life of God, for the grace of God by the experience of touch by the experience of God's proximate solicitude in the ways that Jesus is non-verbally present to you. So what does it mean for us to ask the Holy Spirit to so sanctify us that we also would be like Jesus, fully present to others, not hiding, not dissimulating, not pretending, so that we can be at home in our own selves, so that others can be at home in their own selves, so that others can experience the grace of God in and through us, which is, of course, a fundamental conviction of the Anglican tradition that our bodies reside in a sacramental universe where bodies retain 
a meaning in themselves and they retain a meaning beyond themselves. That is their capacity to signify something else. And in signifying, it doesn't mean that what they are physically, materially is lost. It just means that they are, there's a moreness, a more so-ness, <laughs> more than-ness, to which, of course, we see in all of Jesus' miracles. Hey there, podcast listener. If you've listened to the podcast for a while, you probably know that The Living Church is not just a podcast. Oh no, my friend. TLC is a publishing ministry with a unique magazine, independent church news reporting, a stellar theology blog, resources for parish ministry, many of them free. I could go on. Stop me now. Stop me now. We're rooted in the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion, but we have a big heart for the unity of all God's people. You know that I love that you're here, but I don't want you to just stay in the podcast space and miss out on other ways our ministry might serve you. You can go to livingchurch.org and see what all TLC offers. How can we serve you today? One way we might serve you is coming up in September. We're hosting an event with an amazing community of friends at All Souls Episcopal Church in Oklahoma City, a conference called The Human Pilgrimage. What does it mean to be human? How do we live fully as creatures loved, limited, and liberated by God? Join The Living Church September 26th to 28th in Oklahoma City and be refreshed by three days of world-class keynotes, friendship, and meditation on who we are as creatures in Christ. Right now, you also get 15% off all tickets with the promo code EARLYBIRD. Go to livingchurch.org forward slash events for more information and to buy your tickets. And I hope to see you there. One thing that makes me think of is the way that, you know, if anyone ever says to you, dogs and bees can smell fear, it immediately just makes you scared of dogs and bees. But <laughs> but it points to the fact that the way that we pick up on nonverbal communication as creatures is so instinctual. It's so gut level. Someone can say, yeah, I believe you. And just the way that they're sitting tells you they don't believe you at all. <laughs> and. Right. Which which is just so incredible. And again, you know, you're talking about the way that Jesus looked with his eyes, the way that he heard with his ears, the way he moved toward people. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to us and to our own sanctification mm-hmm. and being made in his image and his likeness, mm-hmm. you know, there there are things we can do and say. We often have to do and say the things that we don't feel and project mm-hmm. things that we don't feel in order to grow in in kindness right. and holiness and attentiveness yeah. to God's will. But at a certain point, it's got to get gut level so that our bodies are telling, are are non-verbally communicating something. Something's got to be transformed. That transformation and how it happens is, is such a mystery. Can I give two examples? Yeah, please. A few weeks ago, my wife, Ada, and I were having what I like to call intense fellowship. We were not seeing eye to eye. Metaphorically speaking, but also literally speaking. We were not looking at each other because we were upset. And she's standing at about five feet away from me. And I get to the point where I I think I have some sense of of, what's needed. And so I say, hey, look, I think we're going to be okay. We just need some time to figure this out, but I'm with you and and, and I love you and, and we'll figure this out. She looks at me and she says, 
David, thank you, but I hear your words and they don't match anything in your body language. You're leaning away from me. Your arms are crossed. You're not really looking at me. So could you just help me out a little bit? Could you just, could your body just communicate that we really are going to be okay? And in that moment, my instinct, my inertia was to pull even further away and then to complain and counterattack, right? But by the grace of God, there's a smidgen of grace. And when it flies by, you grab it and <laughs> you hold on to it for dear life. And so I moved two steps forward. I opened up my hand and I gave her eye contact and I said, here's my hand. Would you put your hand in my hand? And, and I want you to know with my hands, I'm with you and I love you and we're going to be okay. And I'm, and I'm verbally basically helping my body get to a place to be integrated, right? Mm. A couple of years ago, our rector invited us to do something new as a congregation. And that was when we recited the Lord's Prayer. He invited us to hold hands with the people next to us, which for some people may feel like no big deal. And I think other, you know, the cultures of other congregations would feel very uncomfortable, right? But he wanted us to have a physical act that would then symbolize who we were meant to be in this prayer that we prayed commonly, that we confessed, right? That over time, it would embed in our bodies instincts or habits to want to reach out to others beyond the liturgical context, to, that our hands would lead our hearts and minds that may be recalcitrant with respect to somebody who, for liturgical, theological, or political reasons or otherwise, might be felt to be an other, to be an enemy, to be somebody I'm not interested in hanging out with or, you know, being kindred with. I think it's a it's a multi-pronged sort of process to where we would become the kind of humans who would instinctually in our bodies reach out. But I think it starts, you know, in something as simple as that kind of physical gesture that then instinctually my, my body is leading my will, my emotions, and my mind in becoming true, you know, a true bearer of God's image, a true reflection of Christ himself. And I think too, in in our in our splintered moment in in the Anglican Communion, which has always struggled with lots of <laughs> splinters and tensions, I just wonder for anyone listening who's a leader who has to deal with bridge building, who or who's in the middle of an argument with someone who really has a mouthful to say to someone who's maybe behaving badly, or maybe you're just trying to figure out who actually behaved badly in this situation. I wonder what difference it would make as you're thinking about how to respond to an email or how to answer a person or how to engage in a conflict, just imagine holding that person's hand and say, mm. if I were holding their hand and looking in their eyes, mm. how would I put this? You know, if I had actual physical contact with them and they allowed it and they weren't, you know, snarling at me, how, how, how would I, if I had their full attention in that moment, address them? Yeah. Can I give one more example? Yeah, please. But when my nephews, Clifford Machine's boys, were younger and they would get into fights with each other, my sister and brother-in-law would have them stand on a little rug and they would have to put their left hand on their heart and their right hand on their brother's shoulders, which is it's pretty close up, right? Oh my and then gosh. one brother would have to say what hurt their you know, his feelings and the other brother would respond and then they changed, you know, turn, took, took, took turns doing it. I think of that when I think of practices of passing the peace, which in many settings, unfortunately, are perfunctory. 
Mm. Now, I'm not saying every, you know, say rote passing of the piece is not heartfelt. It could be. But I do wonder to myself, could we mine, mine, M-I-N-E, mine, the riches of the passing of the piece so there was more time, more sort of kind of a thoughtful invitation to extend a meaningful gesture of the passing of the piece. And I think at some level, some physical contact might contact might come into play. But I think the other is eye contact. And I write about this in the science chapter about sort of this scientific idea of interactional synchrony, which sort of describes how human beings become attuned or synced up with each other to the extent that they have meaningful eye-to-eye contact. So that's how babies learn what it means to be noticed, to be attended to, to to be felt to be meaningful as mothers or fathers or others, caregivers, siblings, engage that eye to eye and and the face, you know, is fully present. It's smiling, it's frowning and babies sort of, you know, mimic those things, but those carry it into our adult lives. And so when someone is really truly fully present to us in their bodies, I think that goes a long way. Mm. I'll give one other quick example. I'm part of the prayer ministry in our church. And so, you know, every, I don't know, few weeks, I am part of a, a, a pair that offers prayer for people after the Eucharist, after they've received the Eucharist. And a number of months ago, somebody came up and asked for prayer. And this was somebody against whom I had ought. Mm. Oh, boy. I was irritated at this person. I, you could actually say I was angry and uh, and resentful. And I would have been happily if I had really never talked to her again, is how my my heart felt, right? This person came up and somewhat unknowing of where I was emotionally asked for prayer for something that was pretty vulnerable. Oh, wow. And, and when we pray, we anoint them, we bless them, you know, in the Trinity, and we ask if we might lay our hands on their shoulders to pray for them. And so we did. And this person said yes. And the moment I put my hand on their shoulder was the moment I felt like the Holy Spirit just did this tectonic shift in my heart that the physical act of touching their body shifted my emotional space and it was almost as if i would be betraying you know like the fundamental law of love if i did not allow my heart and mind to follow the gesture of my hand yeah so what would it look like in your invitation to you know church leaders clergy persons to imagine ways that maybe one thing, whether it's call to worship, benediction, you know, confession of sin, passing of the peace, all these little, they're little interstitial moments that can allow for a little bit of, you know, extemporaneous pastoral, you know, presence to allow bodies to contribute to the mending of fences, as it were. Oh, gosh, yeah, yeah. And my mind is also going to structural mending of fences. You know, I was I was really upset about GAFCON and the decision made there. And I've just been, I've really struggled with it. And uh, I had an experience, and I really, I don't think he would, he would mind me sharing this, where I actually unexpectedly in Atlanta ran into Archbishop Foley Beach. And yes, we ended up in the same room. And I heard him preach. And then 
there was a prayer time and I thought, you know what, this, I think that we should pray together. And it was very similar experience to yours where we were physically, you know, touching hands on shoulders Mm -hmm. and it was a moment of real prayer, asking Mm -hmm. for God's help, asking for, you know, repentance, asking for, you know, the Holy Spirit's intercession and, you know, in our, in our struggles and problems in, in the church. And that's the kind of thing that can, that can only happen when two people end up in a room together. So my puzzlement and my struggle is not over because obviously I saw the power of what can happen when people come into the (laughs) same room, but it was such a grace that that happened. And, Mm. uh, you know, Archbishop Foley, like if you've ever met him, he's just like the sweetest guy that is, (laughs) that is not up for debate. Well, I'd, I'd love to move on a little bit, David, and talk about some of the specific aspects of, of worship and worship life, particularly for Anglicans and Episcopalians. So what do you think Anglicans and Episcopalians tend to get right about the body and worship? Mm-hmm. And then what do Anglicans and Episcopalians tend to miss or misunderstand? Again, realizing, are we talking about a church in Minnesota? Or are we talking about a church in Florida, are we talking about a church in Nigeria? You know, exactly. this really varies, but how would you respond to that? It does. I mean, it obviously, and there's some kind of asterisk that has to be put on anything I say, because it is a pretty varied and variegated communion. At some level, I would hope that we would all agree about the fact that we, as I've already mentioned, live in a sacramental universe where physical things are dignified, are blessed, are benedicted, as it were, and play an active, positive role rather than a passive, neutral, or negative role in enabling us to be fully human and enabling us to be fully Christian. So I would hope that Anglicans would have a confidence in in all kinds of physical things and even in an at least a tacit acceptance in aesthetic maximalism that that hmm. all senses all aesthetic data can contribute to a fullness of life even if maybe through the church calendar we you know journey through you know rhythms of maximalism and minimalism or festal and simple or aesthetic and ascetic, we can just kind of lean into it and trust that what we do with our bodies consciously, unconsciously, thoughtfully, willingly, and sometimes just routinely can contribute to forming Christ-likeness in us. That I think we get right. What do we get wrong? I don't know if we have a, a you know a trademark on the things that we get wrong with respect to say the Roman Catholic or, or Orthodox you know histories. Mm, yeah, but I, point. in my ch- church history chapter, I talk about well, I, I sort of come up with a phrase which I call the double-edged sword of originalism, and that idea, as I explain it there, is this conviction that if we can find a a practice, like a liturgical practice, as far back in history, and I'm not talking about biblical history, but as far back in church history, if it goes back really far back, then it is true forever and always to the end of the age, and we must do it, and we can never not not do it. The other side of that is if we cannot find something in the earliest history, then we ought not to do it for some reason or another. So the sign of the cross, as best as historians can tell, shows up in the third century. So it shows up pretty early, but 
up and through the medieval era, Christians predominantly stood for the entirety of the liturgy. Sitting and kneeling were not common. The organ doesn't show up until the 10th century. Pews don't show up until the 13th century. And I just think we need to be a little bit more humble and and light-handed with some of these things. Not that we can't have a conviction about them, but the line of thinking or the idea that would say, well, we've been doing it from the beginning, actually just doesn't bear out in historical, rigorous historical research, which is, I guess, a point that I try to make in that chapter. The other thing, and this is where I think our brothers and sisters in the global South have some things to share with us in the global North, but especially in the Anglo-American sort of cultural context that I think deserves an honest hearing. There's a Catholic, an African Catholic theologian, Uzuku is his last name, and he wrote a book called Worship as, as Body Languages. And one of the things he helps readers understand is how in the fourth century, fourth, fifth century, when Christianity is legalized and the Roman church begins defining liturgical practices for the rest of, let's say, Christendom, anachronistically put. He helps readers understand how those who are in leadership at the time in the church in Rome are predominantly coming out of elite social economic classes. And those elite, if you will, aristocratic classes have a certain idea about what dignified movement looks like. What comportment. Solid, sober, yeah, comportment, stately worship. Mm. And it's equal rights about how that idea, which became sort of cemented and sealed as the definitive way, if you want to be faithful and true and reverential in your worship, this is how one ought to be, how that has been very damaging for the church, for the global body, in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, whose cultural contexts, while varied, have a certain family resemblance that does not resemble a lot of what comes out of European or, you know, you know, English, uh, 16th century English contexts. I'm not interested in chastising, but I am interested in inviting us into more of a sober, humble reckoning with the things that we have believed. Well, this is the only way to be before God faithfully. But what about kinetically expansive and expressive registers of prayer and praise that we find not only in the Psalter, but as, you know, indigenous or endemic to African context or Latin American. Might that also be just as, quote unquote, faithful or reverential? And so I think to the extent that Anglicans and Episcopalians and European and then, you know, British, North American contexts tend to have mapped liturgical reverence to a certain cultural idea, which tends to be aristocratic or monarchical kind of ideas of like how you behave in front of a monarch. I just think we should be just a little bit perhaps more modest in our sort of, you know, diehard convictions about that and listen to how the global church might not only have a legitimate place at the table of reverence, but maybe have something to offer and contribute to invite us into a greater fullness that would not deny sort of the somber, stately, sober type comportment, but include other registers, you know, maybe at different times, you know, season of Pentecost or Easter time. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned in your book, worship as a delight. Mm. So many things that we experience, actually all of our delights 
are physical. Even the even the new ideas we have are neurons firing in our brain, which are releasing endorphins and making us feel good about what we just learned. Right. So all of our pleasures, all of our delights are physical. So if someone's trying to make sort of changes or think about worship or liturgical improvements in their church, how could a pastor or Christian leader rediscover delight in mm. in worship? How does a leader kind of feel out where is delight happening? Where is delight missing in, in the liturgical life of my congregation? Yeah. Well, I guess I would say without actually having thought of an answer to, to, to that precise question, I would say that delight resides at the very core of our human vocation. <clears throat> that praise and Holy Scripture begins in wonder and ends in wonder in Genesis all the way to Revelation. Dante, you know, the beatific involves this utter delight. But I, I think maybe there are helps, as it were, there are practical helps, things that invite us into, inspire us towards, help our slow and sluggish selves to move towards delight. Obviously, music can play that that role the visual arrangement of the space, what we look at can inspire delight. Obviously, sermons can have that kind of element. But I wonder if, if the telos of delight, that is, if you could point to a human being and say, their whole being radiates delight. Well, at this point, we could say there's only one who, who realized <laughs> as Jesus himself. But maybe there's a sense in which somebody who's marked thoroughly and comprehensively by delight is able to take pleasure or joy or satisfaction or give loving attention to everything in creation, no matter how small or seemingly significant. And because that attention is marked by love, marked by the sacrificial love, there's a sense in which their person, their life, is an expression of unself-conscious, unself-protective, self-giving of, you know, their themselves, you know. And so wouldn't it be wonderful if over time we shepherded our people, our communities, our congregations towards becoming human beings, men and women who were fully at home in their in their own skin and fully at home with others in their own bodies marked not by shame or judgmentalism or being self-protective or hiding or controlling or dominating but increasingly marked by wonder and really i think that is what jesus is after when he says that the kingdom of god is is characterized by a childlikeness a kind, as Bruce Walkie, my Old Testament professor, said, that we move from naivete to skepticism to second naivete, and that many of us get stuck in skepticism, that the world is always at a distance from us. But perhaps when we have passed through the, you know, through the valleys of, 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 of doubting and, and challenging and being skeptical and critical, and not, not that those things are, are in appropriate but if we stay there in a, in a mode that keeps the world that keeps god and keeps others at a distance because we're 
protecting ourselves, then then maybe we are missing out on that kind of delight that marks the lives at you know at best and ideally children, and that Jesus himself shows, and that we see glimpses of throughout not just biblical history but church history. Maybe that is that is the good news. That is the good news that is so good that the gates of hell cannot prevail against people who are marked by this wonder-filled, delightful love of all things that God has made, and obviously a delight and love for for, for you know for God and Christ Himself, which is where I end the book. That's sort of that that is that is you know the, the that is the telos of all of us. But we don't wait till that final say moment in chronological history, whatever that looks like. We begin now living as a people who are marked by unselfconscious, unselfprotective, unhiding delight and love in the smallness, the littleness of of the world around us. And even though there's sorrow and tragedy and and there's chaos that marks our world, that we can perceive that that God and Christ continues to delight and that joy becomes a medicine and that joy becomes a strength and that joy becomes a bond that forges a unity that defies all empirical data or doubts. Oh, well... David, thank you for spending your time with me today. I've been speaking with the Reverend Dr. W. David O. Taylor. You can look for his book, and I will put a link to it in the show notes. It's called A Body of Praise. Thanks so much, David. Thank you, Amber. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast and Ministry of the Living Church Institute. In another month, we will roll out our two-part UK retrospective. But in two weeks... I know you'll be thinking about fall programming and getting those kids back into Sunday school and youth group. So we're going to talk to Melina Smith, founder of Storymakers, a visual discipleship experience about what helps teens connect to faith, what helps them want to come to church and stay there in an increasingly visual age. And no, your church doesn't have to be cool. Until then, our producer is Leslie Thompson. I'm Amber Noel, your host, and it's been good to be with you. Peace.